Amen. So again, uh, Moses is reviewing the law with the younger generation uh, before they enter into the promised land so that they have this firsthand information and the experience with the Lord. And uh, we just stopped in chapter 24 at verse 16, and we were in the middle of some uh, discussions uh, regarding uh, fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sins. Uh, heavy context, uh, difficult passage to weigh all the details out about, but uh, you know, our modern culture would be wise to understand that each generation is responsible for its own self and its own conduct. We can't blame the previous generation, and we can't blame the problems of the current generation on the previous one. So each one of us needs to own our own success and failure, and uh, the Lord's blessing be upon us. Verse 17, you shall not pervert justice, do the stranger or the fatherless, nor take a widow's garment as a pledge. The weak and the vulnerable uh, need justice is what's being said, and our culture is a far cry from that. If you're wealthy, the justice system favors you. You you have better opportunities than those without. I know that there are good courts and good balances, but by and large, the more that you can pay out on your court case, the better off you're going to be in the process. There isn't equal justice. I'm not, you know, one of these social justice warriors who's decrying every little thing that goes on. But we've watched as those who are incredibly wealthy seem to walk away with little problem, while those who cannot afford you know, better legal representation bear the brunt of whatever they're dealing with. Our culture's lost grip with this. Uh, the stranger and the fatherless, uh, those that are not in favor. You know, Those that are in favor, just that, they have the favor of the ruling class, the elite, the court systems, and this is always a problem all throughout history. Every culture has done this. Extend leniency to those that they appreciate and then to be harsh and cruel. You know, And it might even be necessary right, to be harsh and cruel in every setting. That's not the issue. right? The rule of law balances out a culture. And it does act as a deterrent regardless of what the sociologists and psychologists want to tell you. Right? If you punish one criminal, the others have to consider what lies in front of them if they're going to participate in that. The imbalance and the unnecessary lenience causes there to be this outcry for justice. Right, Equal balances, and the Lord's going to talk about that in just a moment. There must be an even scale in any judicial system. The minute that it becomes imbalanced, things fall apart. And then that taking a widow's garment as a pledge. You cannot take that which is necessary from a person in need as the collateral to their loan. You must find another way to do it. And the Lord is encouraging them to find very lenient ways of extending loans. So as far as the financial system of this day, 
He's he's asking them, he's demanding of them that they look at one another as family. That if if you have someone like a widow who's, uh, you know, in such plight that she needs assistance, then you don't take things away from her that are going to make it difficult or impossible for her to just have her basic needs met. You know, it's a much broader uh, explanation than just her, her, you know, outer garment, her coat, as it were. Now he says in verse 18, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do these things. And he's reaching back a long ways through the number of things that we've studied recently. But these two certainly have the uh, you know application, the sense that, look, you got to examine where you've come from and the grace of God that you've received. As you look at how you've been treated by your heavenly father, then you need to behave that way towards other people. Right? I mean, we, we say that, right? Oh, the golden rule. And very often people will flippantly say that, and they are even referring to Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount where, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. They're, they're meaning that, but they don't take it to heart, and they certainly don't apply it to their lives and their conduct. The golden rule. Again, I want to dwell on the fact that even when we hear it, we often think of it in the negative. We don't think of it in the positive, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. We often apply that to the negative. I really wanted to throttle them, and I kept myself from doing it. Therefore, that equals me doing good to them. No, that's not what's... Uh, being said at all right just because you didn't punch them in the face doesn't equal you being good to them but you know hear what jesus is saying you know do unto other people what you would have them do to you would you have them be especially kind especially forgiving especially lenient you know provisional in your life caring right would you have them do those things you know our cultures some is caught onto this idea of paying it forward you know being kind to a person unnecessarily i i experienced that uh, the other day for the first time in my life where someone ahead of me i didn't even know who paid for my coffee yeah it's a sm- such a small thing but the kindness involved in doing for someone else what you would enjoy having done for yourself the golden rule is very expansive Uh, our culture you know here in in society and in our judicial system the lord is saying this needs to be uh, you know from your remembrance you were slaves in egypt i delivered you from the were you not a slave to sin where were you not destined for hell? Christ delivered you from a sure-fired ending to your entire life? If, if God has been that gracious and that kind to us, then surely we should be at least working toward that being our heart, our mindset, our conduct, where we would be gracious and forgiving and kind. I, I always point to Jonah, right? rebellious prophet go to the people of Nineveh tell them they're going to be destroyed unless they repent 
The Ninevites were especially wicked to the Israeli people. Jonah says, I'm going the other direction. I want to see Nineveh burn. And he is swallowed by the fish and spit up on the shores of Nineveh where he goes and preaches. And, you know, most of you are probably aware that the Ninevites worshipped the fish god. Dagon. So, so here comes a fish that they worship who spits out a prophet who says, you guys got 40 days to repent or God's going to kill you. How gracious of God, right? When God forgives them, doesn't destroy the people of Nineveh, Jonah is angry and says, this is why I didn't want to come. Because I know that you are gracious. Right? We often hear that. Oh, the God of the Old Testament, so judgmental, so, you know, hellfire and brimstone. The prophet Jonah understood God's character to be gracious and kind, forgiving, benevolent. He did not want to go and preach the message just for the chance that the people would repent. And if they repented, God was not going to destroy them. Jonah wanted them destroyed. See, our character very often is reflected in Jonah, and we project that onto God. If we're children of God, more and more our character should be reflective of our Heavenly Father. Kind, gracious, forgiving, loving, uh, the character that is supposed to belong to our faith. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul, speaking to the church at Corinth, said to them, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Each of us has experienced God's graciousness and his kindness, and it had better become part of our person and our existence and our behavior. That's how we're going to win the world over. Verse 19 of Deuteronomy chapter 24, when you reap your harvest in your field. So this may feel like God is just sort of jumping around and in a way, it is a little bit because they're reviewing the law. So he's going from one law to the next law. And if you look, you can see some connections within it. In particular, the needy and the poor are inside a lot of what's being said most recently. But here, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. Um, so he's going to talk some more about that. But, you know, they would bundle the sheaves. So uh, they had a method of quickly hand braiding strands together. They would gather big bunches and put the strand around the middle and cinch it off. And you've got a big bundle of wheat standing. And they would go through with their sigh and cut down either, you know, a shoulder sigh or a hand sigh, cutting down the wheat and bundling them into stacks and standing them up. So the field is getting progressively harvested, and then they have a wagon that's going through and putting the sheaves up on the cart to take them back for threshing to remove uh, the wheat from the stalk and 
the whole process goes on. If you're halfway through the field and you look back and, oh, we forgot a sheaf right there or, or a few sheaves. Look how we, did, we missed that whole row. The Lord says that stays in place. You don't, you don't go back for that. And it's for the poor and the needy. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. Is what he's saying. The hard-working needy can go out in the fields and glean for themselves. He has more to say about that. That the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. And when you beat your olive trees, you shall buy. Uh, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the strangers, the fatherless, and the widow. The strangers are those who have immigrated to Israel, who are living amongst them, working amongst them. Only Israelis were allowed to own land, right? Um, there was allowance for, for strangers to lease the land if they had opportunity, but by and large, those that immigrated would simply become labor workers there in the communities. And he's saying, you know, the weak, the needy of your communities are supposed to have opportunities to glean for themselves. We don't so much think like this today. You've got a huge orchard, olive trees, and you go through, and their, their method uh, was as they were ripened, they would sp spread big canvas under a tree, and they would simply strike at the branches. And the ripeness of the olives would pop them off, and they'd fall to the ground. Uh, there were those that either were hanging on securely or not quite ripe yet who, no matter how much you thrash the tree, they're not going to fall off the tree. Two, three days after the harvest, a week after the harvest, uh, those olives still hanging on, fruit still on the branches, now ready to be gleaned off. The Lord is saying you don't get to go through and do a second process. Uh, that's for those that are weak, those that are in need. So, so hear this, you guys, right? Uh, we, we look back through American history and we have certain political administrations who have developed big welfare programs. And those welfare programs keep those people impoverished. They do not set them free from their poverty. If you want it, you can have it. If you do anything to better yourself, you lose it. So you're stuck in that place where you're going to constantly take it or have something that would launch you so far beyond it that you're absolutely not in need of it at all anymore. Here the Lord is saying those that are weak, feeble, in need, they can have their jobs. They can do their work. And then there should also be a social welfare program where they can work for extra. No penalties. Go and invest some time. You know it's harvest. You should be as excited as the landowner because you can go to the fields and go to the orchards and get great, not minor. You can get great provision for yourself if you'll just put in a little effort. Work, right? <clears throat> we have a benevolence program here at the church. What we together offer to the Lord if people call us up and they're in need we like to offer to them we ask as part of the application if they would be willing to work for that if they would be willing to come here and lend a hand 
lighten the load of the work that needs to be done here. <clears throat> Just the fact that we have an application to fill out removes 80% of the people who ask. They call up and say, I'm in need of money. We say, well, we have an application. One page, very simple, will help you fill it out if you would even struggle. So you just got to fill out this, I guess I'm all set. And they hang up and they're done. We never hear from them again. There are a few people that fill it out. And we take care of every single one of them. How much are you in need if you can't even fill out a questionnaire? Uh, there's so many people that want without having any effort involved in it. Can't go back and uh, shake out the trees again. It's for the stranger, the fatherless, the widow. When you gather the grapes of the vineyard, you shall not glean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, the widow. Grapes aren't large enough, very uh, unripe. You leave them on the vine. They're not going to cut those off and take them with them. That, that, that is a total waste, and they know that. So they leave them with the understanding in a few days, in a week or so, those are going to fill out and ripen. They are for the needy. They can go in uh, to the orchards and into the vineyards and glean this way. You shall not glean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. Do you get the impression that God is very concerned about the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow? Right? He's, he's very much attentive to them. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. Again, the reminder of where you came from. You, you have to consider what God delivered you out of. For these people, Egypt. For us, our sin, our bondage, the freedom that Christ has given to us. So the farmers are being instructed to leave, purposely leave things behind for those that are in need. James chapter 1, right, uh, verse 27, we very often uh, will say in conversation and sharing our faith with other people, we will very often say, oh, I'm not religious. It's about having a relationship with God. Very true. Absolutely. 100%. But James tells us that pure religion has a definition. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to visit the orphans and the widows in their trouble and keep oneself unspotted from the world. There is a moral purity that the Lord calls us to and a gracious conduct that he expects of us. He wants us to be kind. He expects us to be benevolent with the world that is around us. So much of Christianity has lost sight of these things altogether. There are people in need. You, you know, very often cynicism, right? We've, we've been burned. You try to help people and you find out later they're just ripping you off. Well, that's on them, isn't it? Right? Your goodness and your kindness will be rewarded according to the scripture. And maybe it does teach you some things about the next occasion. But it doesn't mean you just shut off the kind heart that God expects of us. We have great opportunities 
all around us. The world is very needy. The world is very hurting. Just having a conversation with um, a few of you guys uh, regarding helping the homeless here in the area. When I was first down here 20 years ago, I came out of a grocery store and a couple came up to me and asked me if I could help them. And uh, immediately I launch into absolutely and, you know, going to give them food and going to preach the gospel. And, you know, I go through my whole spiel and they're immediately like right up to par with me on the Lord and the Bible. And they just, you know, they're just talking to me about their faith and just how they're in need. And I took great care of them that night. And. Weeks later, I was discussing that with somebody, and they said, oh, like this couple, they're there by this, uh, you know, grocery store, and you commonly see them. I'm like, yeah. They're like, yeah, they've been at that racket for, you know, over a decade. That's their deal. They know how to talk to everybody. If you had gone up to them and said you were a Buddhist, they would have talked Buddhism all night with you. <clears throat> I was kind of bummed out, but like still sort of unsure, you know. They were so sincere. And then I witnessed someone else caring for them. And sure enough, they know how to turn on all the charms. And they've been in this community for 20 years. And there are certain places they will not beg because they don't get enough money there. They go to other locations. And they know how to turn on all of the proper signals so that you'll get it, their profession is begging and they refuse to be freed from particularly the alcoholism that enslaves them. So I've had conversations with them sub subsequently about the need for their freedom from the thing that's killing them. Alcoholism. They're just, they're drunk every day, all day. And that's destroying both of them. And, uh, you know, before it was done, they're very angry with me over just the mere suggestion that they could find freedom from the thing that enslaves them in Christ. Not telling you that story so that you can, you know, be on the lookout. I'm telling you that story because it tests our hearts, does it not? And there are people that are still in need. Don't let experiences like that rob you from the opportunity to take care of and bless the next person that comes along. Let the Lord reach through your heart and minister to them. Chapter 25, here in verse 1, it says, If there is a dispute between men and they come to court, that the judges may judge them, and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked, then it shall be, if the wicked man deserves to be beaten, that the judge will cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence, according to his guilt, for a certain number of blows. Forty blows he may give him, and no more lest he should exceed this and beat him with many blows above these, and your brother be humiliated in your sight. I want to address Jesus' scourging 
and then get back to this discussion regarding punishment for crime and the balance that's supposed to be in place. Uh, even Mel Gibson's uh, movie depiction of Jesus Christ's suffering in the movie The Passion uh, is inaccurate because the Romans scourged Jesus, not the Jews. The Romans didn't have any restraint in their process. They didn't go to 39 lashes and stop. Generally speaking, the scourging that the Romans delivered lasted for two to five minutes, and most often it was actually an execution. They killed the person that they were scourging. It was incredibly rare that someone was even given the opportunity to survive the occasion. 18 inches of hardwood overlaid with braided leather that split into nine separate whip strands that were usually around five feet long. Those strands had bone and glass and steel and lead woven into them, sharpened. The Romans would often, as part of their pagan worship, slit the, th the throat of a goat and drain its blood out in a pit right in front of where they were going to scourge the individual because they would drag the cat of nine tails back and forth through that blood between each stroke, hoping that it would enhance the infection that the person was going to have if they survived. They would tie them stretched out between two posts spread equal, or they would lay them horizontally off the ground with a log or a, a stone in the pit of their stomach, their hands stretched to four posts. Stripped naked, the Roman guard would drag that through and they would lay the first stroke in as hard and heavy as they could, wrap right around the person's body and then wrench it back with everything they had very often that whipping would go all the way to skeletal tissue they would lay the whip across their shoulder bloodied and lean down in the face of the individual who was being tortured and say do you want to confess your crime now what's most unfortunate is jesus christ was sinless the only thing Jesus could possibly confess is my sin and yours. If they would quickly confess their sin, and very often, if the individual had been resistant and come to the point where now they're going to scourge them, that first stroke gets laid into them, they just spill the beans. Even if they haven't committed the crime. Just tell them what they want to hear. It's graphic. If they will confess that quickly, the next stroke they just laid into their neck and they would wrench it back and the person would be gone in just a few seconds. Jesus had nothing to confess. And they tore him apart from head to foot. When we read in the Gospels that Pilate brought him out 
with the crown of thorns beaten into his head and the robe laid over his shoulders, which are shredded and torn. And he stands him up before the crowd and says, Behold the man. Uh, That's a lame translation of what he actually said, which is, Trust me, this really is the guy that you gave me. Because as Isaiah said, his visage, his appearance was more marred than any human being. Pilate was having to assure the people that this bloody mangled mess standing in front of them was actually Jesus who they had turned over to him. So when we read in Deuteronomy of this scourging, please don't try to do any correlation between Christ's suffering for your sins and what's being described here. What Jesus experienced was completely unjust, completely unlawful, and completely merciless. For our sake, for my sake. That needs to move your heart. It needs to sink deeply into your being. You were going to be tortured in flame for all of eternity. Jesus Christ took a taste of that torment in his scourging for your sake. If you'll simply accept it as your own. Amen. Here, balance is what's being called for. Justify the righteous condemn the wicked. That'd be a good place for the judicial system to start. Justifying the righteous, condemning the wicked. There's a lot to be learned from that. Then, the wicked deserves to be beaten to a degree. He needs to be punished to a degree. And it needs to be suffering. There needs to be Difficulty. It cannot be plush. It cannot be that we're allowing. I uh, did a very short period of time in a county jail for the sin of my life, the, the addiction and the crime that I was engaged in. I had met Christ and surrendered my life to Christ and turned myself in for that sentencing. Uh, it was... A cakewalk compared to what the other jails of the world are like. Uh, I've had close acquaintances and uh, family members that I've dealt with and ministered to over the years who have done, you know, state time in Warren State Prison and other locations, and the luxuries that are afforded them is crazy, you know. When you're able to have your own music collection and music player and cable television, it's crazy the things that are supplied and allowed. You know, if it was as severe as it used to be, you could shorten the, the sentences way up and have a greater impact on the hearts and the minds of the people who were being incarcerated. You know, you'd probably have a lot less of what we call the criminal college going on. 
where they go to these facilities and educate one another on crime. You know, some of them graduate after five years with a master's degree. You know what I'm saying? They literally went in as freshmen and came out with a doctorate in crime. It's crazy what we're doing. Sticking to the point here, going to be punished according to the crime. Then, to keep the balance on both ends, the judge has to witness the punishment. One, to keep it from being excessive. Two, so that his own soul is impacted by the sentence that he's delivering. He can't just deliver some cruel punishment and then sort of blind himself by not witnessing it. It has to be a thing that's carried out in front of him so that the balance is kept in the whole process. Going to have a certain number of blows that they wouldn't be exceeded is what's being said here. Paul you know, he wants to make sure we understand that the authorities that are in place are put there by God. Romans 13.4 says for uh, of the, the, the uh, law enforcement and the judicial system, they are God's ministers to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. The summary of the thing is, if the judicial system is working right, if you're not doing anything wrong, then you don't have anything to worry about. You know, I, I got pulled over the other night on the way home from church. And uh, I was very much at ease. Years ago, I'd have been very nervous. Right? My very first appearance in court, not bragging, I say this very shamefully, my very first appearance in court as a teenager was running a red light. Failure to appear to court. Failure to pay the fine. Being involved in an accident, leaving the scene of the accident. Failure to report to the police within 48 hours. That was my first occasion. So when I get pulled over, they're already on edge about what is this guy doing. Now the nice thing is, it's been more than 30 years since there's been any infraction on my license, right? And part of that lesson was my last ticket. I got pulled over, speeding so badly, the fine was $286. I just, I hate just throwing money out the window, you know what I'm saying? It's really stupid. So isn't speeding. Learn my lesson. Enough, you know? At that point... Grown man, family, children. Why am I doing this? This is stupid. So now I drive my family crazy. And everywhere I drive, I use the cruise control, including in town. Just drive it along. If there's enough distance, hit it. Just stay there. Why? Because I have a lead foot. I tend to drive too fast. So I'm headed home the other night from church, and the blue lights come on behind me. And I just put the blinker on and pull over and start getting my information out and put my window down, lights on in the cab so the officer can see everything. And as he approaches, the voice says from behind me, just coming home from church. 
and it's my son-in-law's best friend who has pulled me over. And I know they're not allowed to just toy with you, so I'm thinking, well, there must be something actually wrong. And so after we chat for a few minutes, I say, so why am I being pulled over? He said, you actually do have a taillight out. I just want to let you know. No worry, no panic, no concern. Why? Because I pretty much know I'm not doing anything wrong. Years previously, you know, do you know why I pulled you over? Well, I'm not going to say anything because it could be such a long list. You know, I just, I mean, where do I start? What, you know, do I start with what you might possibly know about or start with the things that you have no idea about? You know what I'm saying? I mean, where do I begin? Why? Because I'm, I was functioning all those years ago in the wrong all the time. My fear was from the fact that I'm functioning in sin. So very often, I have no fear of police officers. I'm always concerned when I meet Christians who used to be criminals who still don't like cops. Why? We're on the same team now. They're, they're doing a little bit different of a thing, but aren't I trying to stop people from living that way? I'm trying to deliver them from the behaviors which will lead to them having altercations with these men and women. We're, we're doing the same job, just in a slightly different way. It needs to be that we understand, right? Our culture, our society is getting so anti-law enforcement, anti-courts. We've got to understand it was designed by God. When it functions properly, it's doing the will of God. They are God's ministers, in fact, it's really quite rare that they're not. Clearly, they do rebel against God and do sinful things as police officers and judges and all of that. I get that, but it's really quite rare. There is the spirit of Antichrist in our culture that is trying to divide us and to create a hatred and a division. There needs to be a submission to authority. Remember that, right? Uh, Jesus, in ministering, meets that centurion. The centurion says, you don't have to come to my house. You know, I am in need of having my servant healed, but, but if you just say the word, it will be so. Why? He said, because I also am a man under authority. Under authority, Jesus stops. It's the only time in his ministry he stops everything and says, right, when the apostles are arguing about, I'm the greatest in the kingdom. And the next one's saying, no, it's actually me. And James and John are like, are you kidding? We're going to have the seats at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus Christ when he enters our kingdom. We're the greatest. They're always arguing. Jesus never stops and says, look at this. Even when Peter says, you are the Christ. And Jesus says, flesh and blood does not reveal this to you, but the Holy Spirit. Jesus doesn't stop them and say, everybody look at Peter and how awesome he is. But he does stop everyone and say, look at this centurion. When that man says, I am a man under authority. We need to understand that one of the greatest things Jesus Christ is looking for in us is a submission 
to the authorities that are over us. He's looking for that in our lives. To him, he says that's the greatest demonstration of faith. Now that I've said all that, we need to rebel against the authorities that are over us. Because they're telling us we can't get together to worship Jesus Christ. This new O variant that's out, <clears throat> all of the medical staff over here is shaking their head right now. <laughs> oh, right. <clears throat> so, uh, well, I'll just stick to uh, this point, okay? It isn't a question of safety. It's a question of control. We are all about wanting people to be safe. And we're encouraging people to be smart and safe. Right? If you're sick, stay home. <laughs> Much as we love you, we'll leave a cardboard box with food on your steps. Okay? We really don't want to be spreading anything around. But we're not going to close the doors of this church. It's not going to happen. We are going to disobey any authorities that say so. Read a lengthy article this morning written by the doctor in South Africa who discovered this variant. And he is saying it's a very strange variant. And everybody's like, see, we told you. His explanation of strange is because the symptoms are so incredibly mild. His words. He goes on to say that the most severe cases that he's seen were people experiencing profound exhaustion. You know, for how long? Two to three days. I'm not reading between the lines. He is saying, I have no idea why the world community is freaking out about this. He's saying, in fact, closing off South Africa is the most damaging thing that could happen for the medical community of South Africa. What they need is help and support right now. They need people going there and going from there to learn and be taught and teach others. Shutting them off, he's saying, seems completely politicized. How far is that going to go? We'll see. Right? Immediately, Democrat-controlled states here in America halted all surgeries in their medical facilities. Why? You know the number of people who are in need of medical procedures right now that can't wait, who are now having to travel to where to get them? The politicization of this whole thing is absolutely out of control. How much are we going to be able to stop that? Probably not much at all. What I can tell you is it does stop at the doors of this church. We're going to worship Jesus Christ. And we are going to use our own heads about how to be cautious and protective, right? If people around us start dropping like flies, then we will take whatever measures we see fit. 
to govern ourselves in the process. I was just sharing with my wife yesterday, now that I'm on this political rant, I'll just stay on it. Okay, the whole issue of making the public wear masks under medical mandate has actually already been tried in the Supreme Court decades ago. It actually began long before that, and the courts started weighing in on it. And it's been through the Supreme Court, whether you're aware of that, several times. And it actually falls under civil rights acts that were enacted in the 60s, 65 and 67. Because what they were saying is, Jews are highly diseased people, and we can't let them out in the public. Nazi Germany. All these diseases in our culture are because of the Jews, and that spread worldwide until the American courts got a hold of that and said, no, that's just discrimination. And they said it can't be done. It will not be allowed. You have to let Jews into your grocery stores and let them shop. You cannot inhibit them. And by extension, it started happening when uh, we were experiencing the persecution of the minorities and the black people here in America. And they're saying, no, blacks are incredibly diseased people. We will not let them into our grocery stores. And so the Supreme Court weighed in and said, you cannot prohibit anyone under any circumstances, even governmental or state mandates. This is in the law from shopping in your store, the same as anyone else without imposing upon them any medical restrictions, such as masks. This is already law. The only way they can do that is if they have had you tested and they have the evidence that you personally are a health threat to them or the people in your establishment. It goes on to say that within this whole discussion of not being able to make people wear masks, not being able to prohibit them from coming into the store, that if they offer a service to the public, then they are a public entity, not a private entity. So they can't say, this is a privately owned store, I won't let you in here. If you allow the public to come in here and shop, then you have to allow all of the public to come in here and shop. And with that, the law even goes on further to say that neither they, the local government, the state government, or the federal government can classify you going there to shop as trespassing. That if they do, it is a civil rights violation. And you are allowed to sue all of the individuals that stopped you. So be it the store owner, the store clerk, the security agent at the door, or the local law enforcement. That's already in law, you guys. And it even specifically says that no government health mandate can stop you from doing that. And here we are, right, letting them impose things that are a violation of our state and our federal laws. We're letting them do it. Think about that. Right? What is that old thing? <clears throat> All it takes for evil to advance is for good men to do nothing. Letting them do this to us. 
They, they're exerting control. I guarantee you, I guarantee you, we're going to witness this variant causing especially Democratic leaders to try and exert that control over us again on a whole new level. Remove the freedom from the people and become the ruling class. That's what they're trying to invoke. <coughs> so, I'll try to keep myself from coughing here. <coughs> Acts chapter 5. <coughs> Please make note of it. Verse 29. <coughs> Peter, John particularly, have been preaching and they've been arrested and they've been beaten and they've been told you cannot preach in the name of Jesus Christ anymore. Now think about that. <clears throat> Everything I just said about being obedient to the authorities pertains to when the authorities are being obedient to God. And the minute that the authorities tell you to be disobedient to God, then you have to consider whether you're going to obey them anymore. <clears throat> Acts chapter 5, verse 29, after they had arrested them, imprisoned them, and then beaten them, Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God <coughs> rather than men. I'm not going to obey you because you're asking us to disobey God. So you have it directly from the apostles that when it comes down to <coughs> obeying God or obeying men, then your only choice is to obey God. Um, verse 4 of Deuteronomy 25 says, uh, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Now, uh, the New Testament gives us two passages using that same premise. The idea is they would uh, use an ox uh, to thresh and crush out the grain from the stalks after harvest. And there were a couple methods they used to do that. But essentially, you've got the ox tethered to a post and he's walking in a circle crushing out the grain and dragging a rolling stone over that grain. And the idea, the basic premise is you're going to make the ox very frustrated if the grain is right there, but you've put a muzzle over his mouth so that he can't eat of the grain while he's treading out the grain. First Corinthians, please take note of this, chapter 9 Verses 9 and 10, Paul says, For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? He's referring to himself as a minister and Barnabas and Peter and others. Uh, or is it for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of this hope. Again, later, Paul, writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, at verse 17, says, Let the elders who rule well 
be counted worthy of double honor. Now, that's literally double pay. The um, King James scholars rendered that as honor, but it's literal uh, two times the paycheck, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. I want to just put a quick uh, explanation here for us, the first of which is ministers should be paid. That's, that's what it's saying. That's what the scriptures are endorsing. <clears throat> the thing that I would really like to accentuate on the end of this is the fact that that is teaching us that organized church is endorsed by God, by Jesus, and by the apostles. And, you know, you're sitting here saying, well, of course it is. Uh, there are those uh, who teach that only home churches are endorsed in the scriptures and that organized churches such as what we're doing are somehow rebellious to God and shouldn't be done and that if ministers receive paychecks, then that's somehow a manipulation of those in ministry and that somehow it's ungodly. Okay, well, I'll clarify a couple things here uh, for right now. The first of which is, I'm not putting any pressure on you. And, and let me explain to you what I mean by that. Uh, Calvary Chapel Bangor is my employer, uh, and not because they've sent me out here to do this. Uh, they're my employer because I take care of video production for them and website design and all kinds of IT stuff and different developmental things. So I, I work for them, and they pay my paycheck, okay? Uh, I volunteer here. So I'm standing here uh, preaching and teaching to you presently on a voluntary basis because the Lord's made it possible. The Lord's given me a good job so that I can stand here and do this. <clears throat> Please don't let that turn into anything weird in your heart. Just understand this, that my motivation in sharing this with you doesn't come from any plea for a paycheck. Right? God's made it possible for me to stand here as a volunteer and to preach, as I am doing right now. This is a biblical premise, that ministers should be paid, and that organized church is, in fact, endorsed by God, endorsed by Jesus Christ, and endorsed by the apostles and Paul as an apostle. So uh, home churches are awesome. Home churches are cool. Uh, I'm really into that whole concept of people meeting in their own homes, even having leadership within those groups and studying the Word of God together. I think that those small-scale, intimate you know, settings are, are very helpful to the body of Christ. <clears throat> but to somehow try and teach that what we're doing is incorrect and isn't the will of the Lord is also incorrect. Uh, the more of us that gather together, the more of us that work together on every level that we can, the more effective that we can be to reach out and do the things that we are doing in the community. God is giving us great opportunities to be here. I tell you right now, <clears throat> whether you are aware of it or not, you're supporting this ministry and what it's doing, uh, particularly amongst the criminal elements and amongst the drug addicts and alcoholics 
in our communities, the Lord is using this small fellowship in big ways. You know, many of you are sharing with people, ministering to people, witnessing to people. They're talking to me. I'm giving them applications. We're sending them, uh, you know, through detox centers and into discipleship programs. Lives are being changed uh, by you being here. There are many other ways, and I know the Lord has other plans. And, And here I just want to encourage you. Maybe those plans are presently inside your head. (laughs) We need to get them out of your head and give them feet and hands and put them to work. So let the Lord speak to you and let us work together. Amen? That, That the resources that the Lord is giving us are serving his kingdom. You know, be they children, be they grown adults. Where where is your plan? How does the Lord speak to you? What is on your heart? Let's let's all be talking about that and getting those things happening more and more. Amen? Let's be useful to the kingdom. So, I've run us out of time again. 25.5 is where we'll have to pick up next week. Will you stand with me and we'll pray? Lord, we are so grateful for the graciousness that you've bestowed upon us, the freedom you've given each of us from our own personal bondage and our own personal Egypt. Thank you so much. With that, Lord, help us to be people of comfort who take that message of deliverance out into the world, that we would share it with others. Be it uh, the simple bondage of our own sin in our own flesh, be it the complex bondage of drug addiction and otherwise. Lord, we want to be your ministers. We want to see your kingdom come and your will being done in each one of our lives and all the lives that we touch. Help us to be men and women of action. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.